Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us your help now to understand your word, to see your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one of the first words that children learn to say, but it's perhaps one of the words that they don't really want to say, especially whenever the pressure's on them to say it. And so often I've watched as our nieces and nephew are kept back from playtime or privileges. They're maybe perched on the naughty step until they say that five-letter word, sorry. As Elton John once sang, sorry seems to be at the hardest word. Well, tonight we're listening in as the Israelites do just that. They have gathered together to say sorry. The chapter heading put in by the NIV publisher says that the Israelites confess their sins. But that's another way of saying that they say sorry to God. Last week, in chapter 8, we saw how the people had gathered together a few weeks before this incident. Then, they had heard the book of the law read aloud for over five hours. And as it had been read to them, as they heard God's law, they wept because they realized that they had fallen short from God's standards. They had failed to obey. But on that occasion, they were told not to weep because the joy of the Lord is their strength. That joy of hearing and understanding and doing God's word. But now in chapter 9, Three weeks later, they're here to do business with God. There's no party atmosphere this time. They have come to weep and mourn and confess their sins. Do you see how they do it in verse 1? The um, manner in which they do it. The clothing that they do it in. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. These are all signs of mourning. They're here to confess to God. Notice that it's those of Israelite descent, at verse 2, that they have separated themselves from all foreigners. And they are confessing their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They're running up to their own sin. They're not just blaming past generations for all that has gone wrong. They're serious about saying sorry. And it shows as we see what happened. Verse 3. For a quarter of the day they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. And another quarter is spent in confession 
and in worshipping the Lord their God. And that seems to be private rather than corporate altogether. Each person meeting with God and confessing their own sins and offering praise to God. But from verse 4 then, we see what happens from the front, as it were, all together. As the Levites, all those guys with their unpronounceable names again, um, as they lead the people, calling in loud voices to the Lord their God in verse 4, and then calling on the people to stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. The bulk of the chapter uh, is taken up in the form of this long prayer. It appears to be led by the Levites as they speak to God and confess the sins of the people. But I wonder, did you notice uh, in what manner it, it takes, how it's composed? I wonder what your favorite subject in school was. Maybe English, maybe maths, geography or science, or maybe history. Because Nehemiah 9 is a retelling of the history of God's people. This prayer is going to be like a history lesson for God's people, reminding them and us of how things have gone in the history of God's dealing with his people. So as the people stand up to praise, that's where this prayer begins, in the praise of God, verses 5 and 6. There's praise for God because of who he is and because of what he has done, his acts of creation. The prayer begins with that desire that God's glorious name will be blessed and praised exalted above all blessing and praise. So however much praise that anyone else may receive, sports stars or pop stars, God's praise is to be exalted, uh, to be even more uh, above all other praise. Why? Because God alone is the Lord. God alone is the God who made everything. The heavens, verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So no matter what you can think of, in the heavens, on the earth, in the seas, whatever is living, God made it all. And so it is right and proper that the multitudes of heaven worship him. So when we come to pray, when we come before the Lord, we do well to remember who it is that we're speaking to. The God who is the God who made everything. His power, his majesty, his glory. The one who deserves our praise 
and worship. From verse 7 then, uh, we get a, a recap of Israel's history, all the things that God has done for Israel. So in verse 7, uh, we hear how the Lord God chose Abram, uh, brought him from his homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans, and, and gave him a new name, Abraham. God then made a covenant with him to give his descendants the promised land. And the summary is there in verse 8, at the very end of verse 8. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. This is who God is. He keeps his promises. God also saw the suffering of his people in Egypt when they went down into the land and became slaves there. And God heard their cry at the Red Sea. And so God sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, working to save his people, making a name for himself. God split the sea for the Israelites to pass through on dry ground but drowned their pursuers, thrown like a stone into mighty waters. And he led his people with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. But God did more than that. He also gave his people the law at Mount Sinai. God coming down to his people, speaking to them from heaven. And in the wilderness, God fed his people with bread and water from the rock and told them to go in and to take the promised land. God had done all this. He had provided and protected and fulfilled his promise so many times. And how did the people respond? Well, we see their response in verse 16. It says, But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They rebelled against God even after he had done all this for them. In fact, They even wanted to turn back to Egypt. They appointed a leader to do just that. They preferred the thought of slavery in Egypt rather than obeying God whose service is perfect freedom. So what did they deserve from God at this point? They would have deserved punishment. They had disobeyed, and yet how did God respond? We see it there in the middle of verse 17. The words that we used at the start of the confession. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. God didn't abandon them to judgment. It didn't leave them to wander on their own, not even when they made the golden calf. God was patient towards them. 
They lack nothing, having God's provision, God's good spirit instructing them, and even their clothes didn't wear out, and their feet didn't swell. Now those were the wilderness years. We've made it to the start of Joshua. Surely it would be better when they enter the promised land. When we see that account from verse 22. God giving kingdoms and nations into their hands. God fulfilling the promise of descendants like the stars in the sky. Them capturing the land filled with good things so that they ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness, verse 25. But at the start of verse 26, we find that word, but, again. But, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. And the pattern would continue. God would send enemies to them. The people would cry out. God would save them. Then things would go bad again. And round and round the pattern continued. But it wasn't just like playing on a roundabout in the playground. You know that thing that you spin around and around on. And it wasn't like a merry-go-round where you just go round and round and then you stop where you start. No, this pattern of going round and round was more like a spiral staircase. Where you go round and round, but you also go down and down. Each time things getting worse. Getting farther and farther from God. The arrogance continued in verse 29. They continued to turn their backs on God, but God was still patient with them. Yet God's patience came to an end. He handed the people over to the neighboring peoples and they went into exile. They were driven out of the land. But even then, God did not make an end of his people. Why? Verse 31, for you are a gracious and merciful God. In verse 32, we see the final plea, the the final appeal for God to help his people. They appeal to our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. And they ask that God would help them. They know that they don't deserve any help. Look at verse 33. They say, in all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. They know that they can't ask for justice. They don't deserve it. They must 
simply ask for grace. They know that they're in the mess that they're in because of their sin. They're slaves in their own land. Another king rules over them, enjoying the harvests of the land of promise. And how do they sum up their position at the very bottom of the page? We are in great distress. They are experiencing the miseries of sin. They are, as the traditional morning and evening prayer service puts it in the confession, miserable sinners, miserable offenders. They don't deserve anything. They know that. But they look to the God of their fathers, the God of the covenant. I wonder, did you notice how God was described the whole way through? He's from everlasting to everlasting. He is blessed. He is righteous. He's uh, the covenant maker, the promise keeper. He's the Lord who worked miraculous signs and wonders. He's the provider. He's forgiving. He's gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He is patient. He is gracious and merciful. And this is our God. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He still offers us his compassion and his mercy. Even when you think you have blown it. Especially when you think you have blown it. There is still the opportunity to come back to him, to turn around and return to him. Indeed, as Romans 5 verse 20 says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And that grace of God is seen in the cross of the Lord Jesus where our God himself took upon himself the penalty that our sins deserved in order to give us his righteousness. Forgiveness is available, freely given, if you only ask and receive it. That's why we read from Acts chapter 13 tonight. Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, they give another Bible overview, another history of God's dealings with his people. And that history has its focus in the Lord Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And what was it that Paul said as he closed his appeal? He said, therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, 
everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. For Nehemiah and his people, their repentance leads to action. They make a binding agreement as they resolve to change. And we'll see that at the next time that we're in Nehemiah. But tonight, perhaps as you lie in bed, as you wait to fall asleep, take a few moments to reflect on your own life story. Things that you've been through. And think on the ways in which God has been faithful to you. Even when you have turned your back on him. And marvel at his mercy. Rejoice in his grace. Rejoice in his steadfast love. So freely offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that time after time you continue to be faithful. We thank you for your mercy. Mercy we do not deserve. And yet mercy that we so joyfully receive. Father, we pray that we would indeed know your goodness tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.